If you have a Bible, you can open to Mark's gospel, the end, uh, toward the end of it. Uh, Mark 14, we'll look at verses 1 through 11. The text is also printed in uh, the bulletin for you on the next page. So for some of us, it's um, pretty natural, I think, to give gifts to express our love. Right, to give gifts to express our love. Pretty natural for some of us. Back when I asked uh, Jerry, I told you I'd be talking a little bit about her now that she's out of the room. Uh, when I asked her to marry me, which is a long time ago now, the thing to do was to try to surprise her. Right? To, to try to surprise the person that you're asking to marry uh, with the proposal. Even though we had talked plenty about marriage, I knew we were going to agree on it. I knew that basically she could see it coming from a mile away. She was expecting it really any day. Um, that just wouldn't do. She had to be surprised for some reason. So, um, so I had it all planned out. And after I bought the ring, which I don't know if you've ever seen her uh, wedding ring, it's, uh, you probably don't remember it because it's uh, not so memorable for its size or quality. Uh, even so, it was something a little bit expensive for a poor seminary student like me. It was kind of a reach, kind of a stretch to buy a ring for her. After I had bought that, I bought her another piece of jewelry, another piece of uh, uh, jewelry, a necklace. And then I talked up this big date to her. Hadn't seen her for a couple weeks. She was gone on a kind of a mission trip with the youth of this church and, um, Hadn't seen her for a while, so when you get back, we're going to have this big date, this whole day. I've got it planned. It's going to be great. This big surprise I had for her, actually. I kept talking about a surprise. I had this thing that I wanted to give her. I had this gift for her. So trying to create some anticipation so clearly she'd be thinking, this is it. He's going to ask me to marry him. Right? And then the day came around, and we went out, and I gave her the necklace. I gave her the necklace uh, kind of as a head fake, right? <laughs> the point was to throw her off a bit. Um, so that when she'd been expecting one thing, convince her it was another. So she really would believe she really would believe. No, it's, it's not today. He's not going to ask me today. He was, he was talking about this really nice necklace that he was going to give me. So then we go about, uh, the rest of our date without her expecting a proposal. And I took her out to the Columbia Gorge and we hiked up Latrell Falls out there, one of the waterfalls got to this scenic viewpoint and recited a a poem that I'd written for her and asked her to marry me and give her the real gift. Give her the real gift, the the ring, right? Asked her to marry me. So maybe it was a bit of a surprise at that point. Uh, From one perspective, um, that all sounds really silly and immature, right? I mean, I, I wasted money on one gift the necklace, just to try to surprise her all the more with the greater gift. Um, for me, it was fairly costly as a way to make her to know my love for her. James Denny was a Scottish uh, Presbyterian theologian about 100 years ago. He says, show me someone who hasn't purchased a gift he couldn't afford for someone he loves, and I'll show you someone who isn't fit for the kingdom. If you don't know what that kind of love is like, you're not fit for the kingdom, is what he's saying. So there, there certainly are less expensive ways to express love to each other. There certainly are. But there's something beautiful about this kind of thing, right? I mean, where you're really 
stretching yourself in order to give a gift that maybe you can't really afford to tell someone that you love them, right? <clears throat> maybe there's something beautiful about that. When, when we are just compelled, compelled, not when it's calculated, but when we're compelled to give gifts that actually cost us something, then that is love expressing itself, declaring the great worth of the one that we love. So maybe it makes sense to you a little bit. Maybe I still seem silly and immature. But maybe it does make sense in the context of romantic love, at least. The kind of lengths that we're willing to go in order to tell somebody that you love them. <clears throat> but have you ever thought about offerings to God in the same way? Probably not, if you're anything like me. Have you ever thought about your offerings to God in the same way? Have you ever written your check with the thrill of love? Have you ever uh, dropped something in the alms box on Mercy Sunday with your vision full of the glorious loveliness of Jesus Christ? Tears in your eyes. I think that's possible. And I want to know more about that kind of beautiful love. So that's what we'll talk about this morning from our text. Let me pray and then I'll read the scripture. Father, you have given us your word. You've given us the word about your son, whom you've given us for life. And you've given us your spirit. You've given us everything that we need in order to recognize your goodness and your love in a way that changes our lives, turns us upside down and makes everything new and wonderful for us in our relationship with you being restored. And so we pray that now uh, you would visit us, help us to hear your word, help us to be changed by it through the work of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so here, Jesus is just a couple days before the Passover. It's during Holy Week. It's that, that week in the Gospels when the Gospel writers are um, really zooming in to focus on everything that's happening uh, during this last week of his life before the cross. And here he is 
in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as usual, basically as usual, hanging out with the people who are the, the least, the least likely, the lost, the outcast, the marginalized of society. Simon the leper would not have been a popular person in society because of his leprosy. Um, whether he was uh, at this moment a leper or whether he suffered from it previously and Jesus maybe healed him, we don't know, but he was called Simon the leper. So people identified him as one of those people you just stay away from. You stay away from this guy. You don't go near him. You don't associate with him. Um, and Jesus is hanging out with him. Right? Jesus always hung out with people who were poor and marginalized, um, people who, who suffered uh, at the hands of society, the oppressed. And, and here he is, as usual, spending time with them. James Edwards is a commentator on this passage. He says that uh, this place, this house, and this woman are those from which we should least expect an act of exemplary discipleship. But from this most unexpected quarter comes an act of sacrificial generosity that supersedes anything reported of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. So this is surprising for us, and I think that God generally um, likes to arrange for surprises like this. God's the kind of God that likes to surprise us. Um, just a little bit of background leading up to this passage. John, in his gospel, in chapter 12, reports that this is Mary of Bethany, this woman who brings this flask in and pours the oil on Jesus. He reports that this is Mary of Bethany. There's a lot of Marys in the Gospels. Um, this is Mary, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That it's, a, it's a family of you know, a brother and two sisters who have a house together in Bethany. In, Luke, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 10, um, we see maybe the first time that they encounter Jesus. Not quite sure, but um, Martha seems fixated on preparing the meal and gets kind of upset at her sister Mary for uh, not helping with the preparations. But Mary is captivated by Jesus. That's what you see in Luke's gospel. She's just enthralled by Jesus, by who he is and by his teaching. She sits at his feet just to be with him and just to hear him. So this gives you a little bit of insight about what Mary is like. Then, in again, in, in John's gospel, back in... Uh, Back to John's gospel, John 11. It's a wonderful uh, chapter where Jesus um, is on his way to Bethany. Lazarus, their brother, has died. Martha has this response as she goes to meet Jesus. And she says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. She knows that Jesus could have done something about whatever it was that killed Lazarus. If you had been here... Our brother wouldn't have died, and Jesus talks with her, and he kind of reasons with her a little bit. He shows compassion to her with Martha. But when Mary meets Jesus and says the exact same thing, you know, she must have said it in a different way, because Jesus breaks down weeping. And he's moved in his gut then to do something about it. And, uh, and he brings... Lazarus back from the dead. It's a, it's a beautiful passage, John 11. Mary has her brother back from the dead. And it's just like the next chapter. 
where John records what we've read in our reading from, from Mark's gospel, that she goes and lavishes this ointment on uh, Jesus out of love. She has her brother back from the dead. She's been very real with Jesus. Every time you see her in the gospels, she's very real. Right? Uh, she has a, a real relationship with him. Jesus has been very real with her. She knows there's something about him. The text doesn't say what she knows or how she knows it, right? Um, but we've got some clues. She knows there's something about him, and maybe she can't articulate it all with the most developed theology. She can't express that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and he's the Savior, and all the intricate deca- details that you might find in a systematic theology book. But she knows that he's absolutely good. She's been around him quite a bit. She knows he's absolutely good, and he's wise, and he is merciful, and he's compassionate. She's really connected with Jesus. She knows that there's something hopeful about him. When he's around, it lights her up. There's something hopeful about him. You can trust him with everything. So her vision is full of his glorious loveliness. His glorious loveliness. Her vision's full of it. So with her eyes full, then, of tears, and with a heart full of gratitude and praise, she brings this flask, this alabaster flask, probably a family heirloom, which adds, you know, sentimental value to the the monetary value that we understand it to have, probably about, uh, in today's reckoning, about $30,000 for a bottle of perfume like this. About $30,000 on top of the sentimental value that it probably had as a family heirloom, because how do you afford something like this? This is the kind of thing that's handed down to you as, a, as an inheritance. It's probably the kind of asset that you're glad to have for security. Think of those things you might have in your possession, one of those assets that you think, boy, if everything goes down the toilet, at least I've got this, and I can sell this, I can liquidate this, and I'll be all right for a while. I've got money in the bank, or I've got something I own. Right? It's one of those things that she's glad to have for security for when times get really tough, and you've got to sell it just to survive. And you can survive, because you had it. It's the kind of thing it would be very difficult to part with. And she broke it. She didn't just open it and pour it out. She broke it and poured it all out on him and the house was filled with the fragrance of it it may be the most beautiful thing anyone's ever done to jesus read through the gospels has anyone interacted with him in a similar way it might be the most beautiful thing anyone's ever done to him but someone there looked at it as silly and immature and wasteful says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Could have been sold, given to the poor. And they scolded her. They scolded her. Matthew's gospel, his account of this uh, event in Matthew 26, he doesn't just say someone, there were some there who said to themselves indignantly, he said the disciples were indignant. Jesus' own people 
his own friends, the guys who have been following him around for a few years, they were the ones who scolded this woman for her, her beautiful act. And then in John, uh, John's gospel, again, kind of narrows it down a little bit more, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. He said this, John records, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, there were, there were possibly several, several people there who were upset at her. It says they scolded her. There were possibly several reasons why people would have scolded Mary. Again, James Edwards, the commentator, says that whatever their motives, they regard the costly devotion of the woman as a waste. In asserting that there could be a better use for the money, however, they demean Jesus as well, whom they regard as unworthy of such extravagance. That's, that's kind of the real point. Demeaning Jesus, he wasn't worth this perfume, this flask being broken and it being dumped out on him. He's not worth it. Right. Mary's gift was only a waste if Jesus wasn't worth it. The others didn't sense his true worth, but she did. She felt it. She felt it. And she was compelled by her love for him to act accordingly. So as the others scolded her, she didn't defend her own actions. She didn't defend herself. Jesus defended her. And he said that she had done a beautiful thing. That her gift had served a purpose beyond what she understood. Her gift to him, maybe she meant it for one thing. And she didn't really know why she meant it. But it served a purpose greater than that which she could have understood. We'll get back to what he said in just a minute, but for now, I think we should sit with the stark contrast between the beautiful thing that Mary did and the terrible things that Judas was about to do. Because this was the last straw for Judas. That's what it says in our passage, is that right after this, he went to the chief priests. It's the last straw. Mary's extravagant gift triggered something for him, and he couldn't take it anymore. And you could imagine... Him thinking to himself, I can't believe this. Not only are we following this guy everywhere, who apparently is just all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants, right? All these miracles that we've seen him do. But he's, he's going crazy. He's talking about, he's teaching about the destruction of the temple. And he's talking about unseating the rulers in, in Israel. Yet at the same time that right now we're going to his death. He's marching to his death right now in Jerusalem. He's going he's gonna to go and die. This seems like craziness. He apparently isn't planning on delivering us from the Romans, but in fact wants to see all the nations join the Jews as God's people. He's going to make the first last and the last first. Not sure what that means, but I don't like it. But now he's going so far as to condone this woman's complete waste of wealth on him. She wasted a fortune on him. When he's fully acknowledged that he's a dead man, he's not going anywhere. And he's making her out to be a better disciple than all of us who have left everything to follow him. She's going to be remembered wherever the gospel is proclaimed. I'll show him memorable. 
So he went of his own initiative. The chief priests didn't track him down. He went of his own initiative to betray Jesus for about what works out to be four months' wages, probably like $10,000. And he allied himself. He made friends with the rich and the powerful against Jesus and against his silly, immature, wasteful, fringe, unimportant friends. Rich men trying to maintain power, they used their wealth to kill Jesus, and then they would use their wealth to try to cover up his resurrection when the, their killing him didn't quite work. <laughs> right. um, and one of Jesus' own friends wanted in on that. One of his own friends. I want in on that. And this is the most terrible thing anyone has ever done, right up against the most beautiful thing anyone has ever done, what Mary did. And it all had to do with the reality of their relationship to Jesus. That's kind of the turning point here, the reality of their relationship to Jesus. Mary knew Jesus. She knew him. She knew how he had loved her. Judas thought that he knew Jesus, but was coming to realize he really had misunderstood him. Judas's understanding of Jesus was based on bad assumptions. He thought he knew Jesus, but he didn't. Where Mary really did. Mary demonstrated her great love for the Lord. Judas demonstrated his supreme self-centeredness. Mary sacrificed her wealth, about $30,000, for Jesus. Judas sacrificed Jesus for wealth, about $10,000. And the thing to take quite seriously here is the fact that Judas is the one whose proximity to Jesus should have made him love Jesus extravagantly. If anyone was going to do these kind of beautiful things in relationship, in a real relationship with Jesus, it should have been somebody like Judas, who is a Christian, who is a disciple, one of his followers, right? He's one of Jesus' own traveling companions, present for most of his earthly ministry, one of the guys who should get it, if anyone should have done something as beautiful as what Mary did, you'd think it really would have been one of his main disciples, like Judas. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you, Christian? If you're a Christian, you've got to ask what's going on inside your own heart. Do you trust your assumptions about Jesus? Or do you lose yourself in contemplation of him? Do you take comfort in knowing that your Bible knowledge is, is rigorous and excellent and your theology is pristine, you take comfort in that? Or are you overwhelmed with gratitude for who Jesus is? Someone who really knows Jesus will love Jesus more than anything. Which begs the question, what does it mean to really know Jesus? What does it mean to really know Jesus in a way that brings out a love for him in our lives. The structure of this passage really matters, as usually with the rest of Mark's gospel. Um, uh, stories are kind of jammed up against one another to make points that kind of are, are bigger points than just those individual stories would make in and of themselves by contrast or comparison or proximity or whatever. The structure matters. Mary's story, the main paragraph that we've read from, 
is bookended by the story of Jesus' enemies seeking his death near the Passover. Near the time of year when the sacrificial lambs are killed for the forgiveness of sins and, uh, and for salvation. Mary's story is bookended by the stories of Jesus' enemies seeking his death. And it's for interactions like this, like his interactions with Mary here. It's for reasons like this that Jesus' enemies seek his death. This is, what, this is why Judas went out right after he interacted with Mary like this, couldn't take it anymore, and went to uh, ally himself, to make, make uh, rich friends to, to betray Jesus. And Jesus, at the heart of this passage, the words that he speaks here, right in the center, everything seems to be pointing to what he's saying here. He defends Mary. He defends Mary. He advocates for her. He vindicates her. He stands up for her on her behalf. And that is ref reflective of his kind of salvation. Where he puts himself forward to defend somebody. And when he defends her, when he defends the woman's extravagant gift, what does he talk about? He talks about his own death. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. You say you want to take this and sell it and spend the money on the poor. You always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So she's done this beautiful thing to me, he says. She's poured out this fragrant, costly offering in preparation for what I am about to do. I am about to offer up the most fragrant offering to God on your behalf. I'm about to do the most beautiful thing anyone has ever done or ever will do for you. I'm going to the cross to give everything I have to God for your sake. I am going to be broken and poured out until there's nothing left. I'm going to the cold tomb where the dead are forgotten so that you might be remembered forever. An immortal living memory before the face of God. When I've been poured out as a beautiful offering to God, then you will know that he forgives you, he loves you, he welcomes you, even you. You'll know that everything that was broken between you and him is restored. That's what I'm about to do, Jesus said. Mary might not understand everything that Jesus, I mean, he, he was implying this, right? It might have gone over her head. She might not have understood everything about his atoning death, his resurrection. But she knows that he's the most important person who ever lived. She knows that somewhere deep inside. And she knows that he's doing the greatest things anyone ever did. And she knows that she's doing it for him, for her. For her. Sorry, he's doing it for her, right? She knows that he loves her, that he's doing these great things for her. She knows... That he is worthy of all praise. He is worthy 
of all praise and adoration, and she doesn't know the half of it. She knows it, but she doesn't know the half of it. Tim Keller said, It takes an experience of beauty to knock us out of our self-centeredness. It takes an experience of beauty to knock us out of our self-centeredness. Jesus is the beautiful offering that knocks us out of our self-centeredness. Someone who really knows Jesus in this way, who knows this Jesus, loves him more than anything, and is compelled by that love to lavish him with gifts. Everything we have already belongs to him. It came from him. He gave it to us as a gift first. And in your, in your grateful love, your praise, your adoration of him, you'll lavish him with any gift. So how do we express our love to him? How do we do it? How? Because we don't have access to his body like she did. Do we? We can't just walk into the meal and bestow gifts on him. Can we? How can we respond to the beautiful offering of Jesus Christ himself to God with our own beautiful offerings to him? What does that look like? He said it. He says, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, if you want it, whenever you want, you can do good for them. You won't always have me, but you'll always have them. Last week, we talked about God's solidarity with the poor, the fact that he he identifies himself with the poor. He actually became a poor man. He had one life to live here on earth, and he chose the life of a poor man. So it was a poor man who said, you always have the poor with you. So when we look at the poor, we should remember Jesus, because we're looking at people who are like Jesus. And in fact, when we look at the poor, we should be remembering ourselves. There's a poor man who said, you always have the poor with you. If you love Jesus and you want to lavish him with gifts to express your love to him, you can do good for the poor. You can do good for the poor. You do have access to the body of Christ. You have access to the body of Christ when you come to church, the church that is his body, with your gifts, with your offerings. You can walk into the meal and bestow your gifts upon him when you bring alms for the poor during the Lord's Supper. You can do those things. Uh, There are some Proverbs that I wanted to read. Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors his maker. And then Proverbs 19, these are printed in the front of the bulletin. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him He pursues them with words, but he does not have them. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, 
and he will repay him for his deed. So we may draw near, in some sense vicariously to Christ, we may draw near to him as we draw near to the real people who are poor and broken and marginalized and oppressed in the world, in, in, uh, in earthly treasures. They're poor in earthly treasures and they're poor in spirit. We may draw near to Jesus as we draw near to the poor to bestow gifts on them. Hebrews 13, we read this earlier in our offering reading, says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To share what you have with each other is called a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. In Exodus 35, Rainey read it in our Old Testament reading. You've just got a picture of... um, of people bringing gifts to beautify the tabernacle, to beautify the place where God met with his people, the place where God's glory dwells, the meeting place between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, the tabernacle, people were instructed to bring gifts with a cheerful heart, to bring them willingly, to offer them willingly. It's the place where God's glory dwells. And now that's the church and we're to bring gifts to beautify God's dwelling place on earth. That is, we're, we're to bring gifts to beautify the people in the church. To help them. To help them survive and help them flourish. Sharing what you have with the church. And, and through it, sharing with those who are in need. You're making beautiful the place where the, the glory of God dwells. And that is received... Not just because you're awesome, not because of how much you give. You can't earn favor with God, even through your your extravagant offerings. It's received in Christ, who purifies it in his own beautiful, fragrant offering. His sacrificial offering to God. Your gifts to the church, your gifts to help people in the church, your gifts to help the poor in our church and in our community, are received as sacrificial offerings to God. In the Old Testament, the Lord commanded tithes and offerings, gifts that belonged to God. He commanded them to be brought and shared with the priests and the refugees and the orphans and the widows. And he said, at these feasts, you're going to get these people together who usually are friendless and helpless to the poor, the outcasts in society, the, the fringe people, unimportant people. You're going to get them together and all that bounty that you were going to pre- pre- present to me as a great offering, that tithe, 10% of all that you have, that you're going to feed them with it. And there's going to be a party. And in the New Testament, the Lord commanded, when you throw a party, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is not abstract. Jesus is not just saying this kind of should be some principle in your life. You could do this. You could have a party and invite the poor. God has said that when we care for the poor among us, the poor in our community, but especially, I think, the poor in the fellowship of the church, in the relationships, the network of relationships that we have as uh, people in the church. 
God says when we do that, we're honoring him. And we're caring for him as we care for the poor. We're, we're lavishing gifts upon him. As we sang uh, the first hymn this morning from Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, it's a, it says, We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So when we're just compelled to give gifts that actually cost us something, that's love expressing itself, declaring the great worth of the one that we love. Gifts of love compelled by the beautiful offering of Jesus Christ. What could be more beautiful than, than such an extravagant love in a world like this? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we... Um, love you because you first loved us and you gave your son Jesus for us. And we say that so frequently, it seems to have little impact. I know it does on me. Would you impress upon all of us here, myself and my friends included, the extravagant love, the great gift, the costly sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, his life poured out for us even to death on the cross. We didn't deserve that even one bit. In fact, we deserve quite the opposite for the way that we've shunned you and broken off our relationship with you, yet you have pursued us and um, at the utter expense, the utter cost of the one who's most precious to you, you've made things right between us. And we can only, only respond with gratitude in our hearts. We know it's meager. Our faith is small and weak. Our vision is narrow, but we are grateful, and we pray that you would increase our gratitude, increase the way that we are able to praise you and adore you, increase the way that we're able to respond to you with faith and through the offering, not just of our earthly treasures, but with our very lives. And would you receive it all as purified through Jesus Christ? Would you make us the kind of people who reflect Jesus and his extravagant, generous love? Make us the kind of people that reflect that that love in all of our relationships. Help us to remember the poor and to even care about doing good for them. And then help us to do good for them. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.